Hi, it's John here. It's no secret 2020 has been a banner year for data and for questions about how we use it. Well, there's no doubt during the pandemic, we've seen just a huge surge in usage. Thanks to COVID, more Canadians than ever are connected to the internet and we're spending a lot more time online. So many of the shows we stream, the sites we visit, the comments we post, they're logged and algorithmically analyzed to provide companies with insights into our behavior. What started out as a data revolution has in some ways turned into a kind of wild west. Of course, it's a challenge and a concern for all of us as citizens. I suspect it's also a challenge for pretty much every business out there that's trying to chart a strategy in a platform economy, that's trying to develop new relationships with consumers who they never get to meet in person. So much of this can be positive, so much of it can also be negative. And as we come out of this crisis, this is an opportunity to reset our digital relationships and our digital economy as we look to rebuild after the pandemic. This is Disruptors, an RBC podcast. I'm your host, John Stackhouse. Just a few weeks ago, the federal government unveiled a bill to improve digital privacy protection and to give people greater control over their personal information. The Digital Charter Implementation Act, as it's called, lays out hefty fines up to 5% of global revenue or $25 million for companies caught breaking the rules. But does it go far enough or does it go too far, threatening to stifle innovation at a critical time for Canadian entrepreneurs? We asked the head of public policy at Facebook Canada, Kevin Chan, who's been on Disruptors before, to weigh in. I think that the federal government has introduced very important and consequential next generation privacy legislation. It will provide greater enforcement powers to the privacy commissioner. It has, I think, very strong financial penalties, but it also preserves some of the best things about the privacy regime in Canada. It, it remains technology neutral. It is principles based and it strikes a careful balance between the protection of data, protection of privacy and innovation. That was Kevin Chan from Facebook Canada, one of the companies that inevitably comes up when we talk about data and privacy. But now I'd like to introduce someone who's been calling for governments to take action on this issue for a long time. Ron Debert is like a cross between Edward Snowden and a character from a John le Carré novel. He teaches at the University of Toronto, where he runs the Citizen Lab, a world-leading disruptor in counter-espionage and the fight to protect citizens in the great cyber wars of our times. Ron gave the 2020 Massey Lectures and turned them into a new book called Reset, Reclaiming the Internet for Civil Society. Ron, welcome to Disruptors. Thanks for having me on your show, John. I appreciate it. You know, Ron, we've known each other for a number of years, but when I heard you initially on the Massey Lectures, I thought, got to get you on Disruptors. This is so on point. So I'm thrilled that uh, we finally made it happen and, and grateful you've made the time for this conversation. I wonder if we can begin first by explaining exactly what the Citizen Lab is for those who aren't familiar. Sure. So the Citizen Lab is a research group at the University of Toronto based in the Monk School. I'm the founder and currently the director, uh, established the Citizen Lab in 2001. 
And by way of background, uh, my expertise is in international security and information technology. And there was a kind of a, a dawning recognition I had in the late 1990s, looking at especially how state signals intelligence operates and how they combine insights from different disciplines, especially technical work to kind of probe the, the hidden infrastructure of our communications environment. And so over years, I recruited people from computer science, engineering science, law, to do this type of mixed methods research. Our area is around digital security and human rights. We've been called a kind of digital watchdog or CSI of human rights, a show I don't watch, but uh, I, get the, I get the comparison. We're not an advocacy group. We're not activists. We very much put emphasis on the idea of doing very careful, evidence-based, peer-reviewed research in the public interest. And that obviously puts us in the crosshairs of, you know, a, a, a lot of powerful actors that would rather we did not. Yeah, you've got a lot of critics out there and uh, um, people who are probably more than critics. But uh, I, I'm curious, Ron, you've been at this almost 20 years. Of course, the world has changed enormously in 20 years. But what, what, what in, in your line of work has changed most significantly? Well, one is the rise of social media, which uh, really began to develop after the lab was established and kind of took off in the, in the later 2000s. Of course, we're at uh, kind of peak time of social media's impact right now, hence the book that I wrote. Um, but the other big trend, I would say, has been the way in which these technologies, broadly speaking, have been used by autocrats, despots, kleptocrats, basically, you know, corrupt individuals and organizations to neutralize civil society. And, and that's a long story. I get into it in the book, but it has really turned that conventional wisdom on its head. When I first started doing research in this area as a graduate student, actually, Everyone thought that the internet would, uh, you know, basically abolish authoritarianism. And this kind of coincided with the euphoria around the end of the Cold War. Oh, we're entering into this new phase of innovation, these powerful technologies, you know, basically giving every individual a bullhorn that can speak to a global audience. It'll be impossible for the Chinas and Saudi Arabias of the world to manage this. And in fact, what we found, quite the opposite. Um, and and I, th I think our research really bears that out. Why is that? Because in a way, the internet is about distributed power. It's given us all billions of people power that decades ago we couldn't have imagined. And yet that simultaneously, there is this concentration of power. As, uh, is there this juxtaposition underway of distributed and concentrated power, or are the forces of concentration winning out over time? Yeah, I, I wouldn't characterize it in binary terms. I think that kind of obscures the complexity of the world that we live in. So, so for sure, it's given people opportunities to express themselves and to connect and to organize. All of that is very true. And for a while, it seemed like the tables were tipping in that direction. And especially with events like the Arab Spring or prior to that, even the Green Movement in Iran, it seemed like this was a growing and even unstoppable illustration of people power combined with digital technologies. But what I think was overlooked were, were two things. One is the ecosystem as a whole is highly insecure. And this has to do with the way in which the platforms and the large tech companies innovate. In other words, they develop applications very quickly, throw it out into the marketplace, and largely leave all of the insecurities to the users and consumers and organizations as a negative externality. They're not held liable for it. 
And that creates um, a lot of opportunities for exploitation. And in the early days of, of my work, most of that was criminal in nature. These would be, you know, uh, Ukrainian hackers and criminals exploiting the fissures and Microsoft operating systems and things like that. But it wasn't too long before um, you had more serious players involved. And that, that's the second factor here that was overlooked was the large and growing cybersecurity industry, which most of us see wrongly in defensive terms. You know, these companies building perimeters around companies and uh, governments to protect them. Part of that's true. But they've also supplied them with tools and products to go on the offense. And in the hands of unaccountable elites, um, where there is no proper safeguard to prevent the abuse of power, these have been exploited very effectively to get inside and neutralize journalists, human rights defenders, uh, lawyers, and political opposition. So those two combined, it took a while for them to build up the momentum, but we're living in the middle of it right now. And as a consequence, I think you can see the impact on civil society quite brutally, actually. Now, a lot of your work rightly focuses on those authoritarian thugs, but I also want to talk about the challenges, and they're very different, but uh, the challenges are there for business. Uh, it can be big business, it can be entrepreneurs who are engaged in data uh, and should be on a fairly ambitious scale. Lots of risks there. And I think every good business knows that uh, business thrives and prospers in the long term when there is proper regulation. The ideal regulation for business is not no regulation. Uh, and that's going to be true in the data space as uh, as well. So I suspect most business uh, executives, managers, as well as entrepreneurs, they, they want to get this right and they want to see society get it right. And I doubt many people listening would agree that we have found the right spot just yet. Talk to us a bit about this idea of surveillance capitalism. That's the title of, uh, of a really big uh, and fascinating uh, book by a Harvard professor. Also gets mentioned on um, The Social Dilemma. I don't know if you, did you see The Social Dilemma? I haven't watched it yet. Everyone has been uh, asking <laughs> me to, but I have not yet. Yeah, I, I think you'd probably find it, uh, at least I, I found it both compelling and a little cliched. Mm -hmm. But um, what, in your view, is surveillance capitalism? So surveillance capitalism, as you point out, Shoshana Zuboff is the business management professor who popularized the term. And actually, I discovered that a professor based in Canada, Vincent Mosco, is the one that coined the term. So oh, I didn't give, know that. Give a oh. shout out to our, uh, our, our Canadian uh, source of that. It's another example of Canadian IP being moved abroad. Yeah, appropriated. In any event, it's, it's a really good way to describe a simple but important character of the underlying business model of pretty much all social media. So the way to think about this is, you know, if you talk to the business executives themselves, you know, they'll describe themselves in many anodyne ways, you know, connecting individuals, building communities, putting all the world's information at your fingertips. But underlying them all is a core business imperative, which is to extract as much data from their users as possible in order to uh, largely target advertisements to them. This is a uh, really interesting sleight of hand is the way I think about it in terms of the relationship between users and platforms. We are not their customers. We are something more like livestock for their data farms. And, and once you kind of see it through that lens, it's hard to escape. So you don't need to see the social dilemma, or maybe you do, because <laughs> you've just kind of uh, captured the, the, the thesis. And I'm having playbacks in my mind of some of the uh, uh, very entertaining scenes about how the growth machine 
works. That's it, it's it's all about 10xing. It's about growth, um, often just for growth's sake. And we've seen in the pandemic incredible growth in data use and data gathering. What's concerned you most over the last eight or 10 months in terms of our relationship with data through this extraordinary time? Well, in fact, I just published a lengthy piece on that very topic in the Globe and Mail, uh, your former paper, which tries to, I guess, wake people up a bit about that very topic. The way I look at it, and, and actually, you know, I lead the article with an anecdote about my son, who is an undergraduate at the University of British Columbia, and he emailed me and said, can you believe that as part of uh, this exam I'm taking for a course, I'm required to install a digital proctoring software? And so I looked at this and I was like, wow, this is incredible. Basically, this type of application, which was mandatory in his course, is like a form of spyware. It, it monitors every keystroke, uh, monitors, tracks retinal movements, captures audio, video, and so forth. And, and to me, you know, there are all sorts of problems, uh, especially around historically marginalized communities with this technology that we don't uh, immediately recognize. And certainly the companies don't pitch it this way and university administrators probably don't think about it. And, and that's kind of illustrative of a lot of things that are going on. So, you know, as I'm speaking to you, I'm looking out the window of my home office, noticing all of these delivery vans going up and down the street, and Amazon sales have skyrocketed. Jeff Bezos's personal wealth in the first six months of the pandemic went up 50 billion. So we're relying now on a technological ecosystem that is highly insecure, poorly regulated, invasive by design, and prone to abuse. And we're doing this largely without public debate and out of necessity and with a sense of urgency, which is understandable. But it's also like building a second floor addition to your home when the foundation is rotting. It'll either all come crumbling down or we'll be sick in the long run. I, I read your Globe piece and was fascinated by it and, and really <laughs> uh, intrigued by the anecdote because uh, my children are of similar ages and I've, I've watched them do exams in similar circumstances and maybe come at it with a, a different or at least expanded perspective that I find it kind of intriguing that we're creating these new opportunities that perhaps uh, people of all ages and all abilities can do exams from wherever they are that can help democratize education. Why can't we find a balance between that democratization through decentralization, which is in large part what the pandemic economy has been about? It's been about uh, distributing economic activity. Why are we not able to manage that value exchange to create new opportunities, uh, create new points of access while protecting very legitimate uh, individual rights? Well, that's the, the million dollar question. I, I think that I'm just about more than anyone will applaud the technology. Generally speaking, I'm, you know, I'm casting a wide net here, but let's call it digital technologies um, hold out great promise to do all sorts of wonderful things. I actually would go so far as to say they're essential to the survival of our species. We're going to need uh, these type of systems. We're going to need surveillance, in fact, in order to do the type of things that we do. The work of my own lab, Citizen Lab, is uh, immersed in technology. We are 
uh, among the world's experts in navigating this world using the very technologies we talk about. Um, so it's not the technology alone that's a problem. It's the way in which it's um, designed right now um, that is problematic. And how do you think about the need for experimentation and evolution? Tech, by its nature, it evolves. It takes on new purposes. It often ends up being adopted and scaled for reasons that the original inventor or developer <laughs> didn't imagine. The smartphone is uh, one of the best examples of that. And there are unintended consequences, but sometimes unintended benefits as well. A lot of people listening are operators, they're entrepreneurs, they're creators, they're disruptors. How can they think through that, uh, that, I don't know if it's a random walk of innovation, but certainly the uncertainties of innovation that can lead to both positive outcomes and those unintended consequences? You know, I, I think there's a, an issue around the, the way in which the current environment and the, the dominance of these large tech platforms has arisen that actually creates a barrier to the type of healthy innovation I'd like to see. Uh, we are at a, a place again where, you know, these large tech platforms have extraordinary uh, market power and have engaged in monopolistic practices, predatory pricing, uh, gobbling up competitors when they can't innovate in inside, in-house, so they just go out and buy them instead. And I think that actually acts as a pretty significant market barrier. And that's why I'm, I'm grateful to see discussion now around antitrust, which, by the way, and this is one of the things I point out in the book, originally had a, as much a political motivation underlying the application of antitrust as a tool as it did economic. It was about preventing the concentration of power, big is bad. And I think what we see right now is an illustration of, of how that affects innovation. The big tech platforms can act as gatekeepers and prevent some interesting things from emerging because they prevent competitors from accessing their services or interacting with their consumers. If you recall, there was a time when Microsoft was the big monopoly power and we were all worried because, you know, it seemed like we were being streamlined into an embrace of uh, this one tech giant and all of the appliances and devices had to conform uh, in order for us to do virtually anything. And that was broken up. And Apple in particular innovated in its own way to kind of reverse engineer and provide alternative uh, versions of a lot of the Microsoft applications, which I think was very healthy. Right. So I need I think we need to we're in a position again where these big platforms are putting encumbrances in the way of of smaller entrepreneurs. And that's only something that can be addressed through regulation, which is why I think we need to get at some of those antitrust mechanisms. There's a lot more to explore with Ron, so please stay with us. Coming up after the break, we'll hear why it's not all doom and gloom. There are reasons for optimism in the battle to protect our personal information. You're listening to Disruptors, an RBC podcast. I'm your host, John Stackhouse. This season, our goal is to bring you thought-provoking conversations with business and innovation leaders about the ways we can rebuild the Canadian economy coming out of COVID. If you like what you're hearing, please help us spread the word and don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'd love to connect on Twitter. I'm at Stackhouse John. And you can email us, disruptors 
at rbc.com. My guest today is Canada's so-called hacker king, Ron Diebert, the founder of the Citizen Lab at the University of Toronto. So much of the challenge is that everything we rely on is controlled by engineers and lawyers and <laughs> isn't thought through from a, from a human perspective. And, uh, you know, to use the cliche, some of my best friends truly are engineers and lawyers, so I've got nothing against them. But in a way, it speaks to the challenge that you've been addressing through your work over the decades of interdisciplinary approaches. And I wonder what uh, business can learn from interdisciplinary approaches when we're thinking through and dealing with uh, with these tech challenges? Well, I, th I think it's, you know, businesses have a obligation to their shareholders to, you know, make revenue and then have successful businesses. And so they are often driven to find the next advantage and some kind of application that's going to be attractive to their potential customers. So I understand the imperatives underlying all of that. I would actually go a bit back and, and start with what business management schools could teach about underlying social values and a concern for wider issues that may not be front and center when you're thinking about how to run a business most effectively. And this is a, a general complaint I have about universities as a whole. You know, I know business management schools teach courses in ethics and so on, but a lot of the university is is tilting towards seeing itself as a vehicle to kind of feed the machine, is the way I think about it. Um, so you're learning science, technology, engineering, mathematics. Those are important subjects, but they're not the be-all and end-all. And they're certainly not the entirety of the ingredients you need for a healthy democratic society. Um, we need to have people reflect more broadly. And I know that sounds a bit trite and kind of pat even, but there's a truth to it. I, I think we've neglected the arts, social sciences, the humanities at our own peril. And we've become so fixated on the bottom line. So you can make a lot of money by uh, vacuuming up a lot of data and selling it to a lot of third parties. But is that a good thing? You know, is that is that going to, in the long run, help us as a society to have that uh, the overarching imperative? I don't think so. It's a fascinating way of looking at it. I fear that one of the consequences of this disruptive era is that a lot of companies, especially legacy companies that have seen entire business models uh, threatened or even taken away, especially by the platforms, have almost tried to out-platform the platforms and thought, well, you know, we can be data companies too. And maybe they can, uh, but sometimes they've lost sight of their purpose and have just been pursuing customers uh, wherever they are and kind of boiling them down to data points and then mon trying to monetize that because so much of their other uh, monetization strategy, their, their money-making strategy has been uh, taken away by those platforms. The techniques of surveillance are getting better and better, probably in ways that most of us don't understand. Uh, you've described the challenges of third-generation techniques of surveillance. Tell us, first of all, what first and second gen surveillance is and then what we should be thinking about with third or even fourth generation techniques. Uh, well, actually, that, that's an older formulation that myself and a couple of colleagues came up with in the kind of middle 2000s. We were studying information control techniques and we're trying to kind of categorize and analyze them wearing our academic hats. And, and this is re with respect specifically to information control around the Internet. 
And at that time, there was a lot of focus on internet censorship and the Great Firewall of China, you know, countries putting in place essentially borders around what their citizens could access. And that was the first generation of controls. The second was more domestic in orientation. It was about compelling the private companies to abide by local laws and, you know, um, issue takedown notices or require them to turn over user data upon request. So a kind of you know, deepening of the regulatory net around the companies that operate in your country jurisdiction. And then the third generation, as we called it, which really came from reflecting on what we saw going on in the former Soviet Union, where I really do think a lot of the techniques, even though Russia tends to take up a lot of oxygen and its foreign influence operations get exaggerated, a lot of what I've seen around the world really originated in the experiments that were undertaken in Russia and the former Soviet republics. And, and these are, you know, using techniques to essentially go on the offense, to gather information about your adversaries, either through hacking or data breaches or other types of leaks, manipulate them, maybe falsify them even, and then put them in the public domain in order to um, neutralize them to discredit them and embarrass them. And this is, of course, a, a very old technique within Russian history, going back to the idea of compromat and desinformatia. And what they found was that the internet and social media were like the perfectly constituted ecosystem within which to undertake those type of operations. And that, that's why uh, they've thrived. What we've seen subsequently, keeping in mind that, you know, that was kind of derived for us anyway in, in the mid to, to late 2000s, subsequent to that, we've seen these third generation techniques really globalize and amplify and be supported by the private sector. So it's now big business. There are a lot of companies out there, dark PR companies are a good example, cyber surveillance companies, cyber warfare companies, uh, that will provide services for these type of operations to willing government clients. So third generation techniques, which were kind of invented in, in the former Soviet republics, have now become normalized, I would say, worldwide. And we're living in that very dangerous environment right now. Is there going to be a fourth fourth generation that we should be mindful of? Well, yeah, I hope the fourth generation is the, uh, is the last chapter of Reset, where we apply restraints to all of this. So we can say that I'm, I'm not looking to escalate yet further. I, I worry that uh, if there is another generation in that trajectory, it'll be to, our, to all of our ruin. Well, in our remaining time, I do want to get to that last chapter because it's profound. The, the title is Retreat, Reform, Restraint. And I wonder if we can start with a brief interpretation of each of those terms. So let's start with retreat. Describe what that means to you and how we should think about retreating. For sure. So in giving talks, I would often have people come up to me afterwards. I'm kind of like, you know, the, the doomsayer, I suppose. I have that. Even though I don't know, I enjoy my work, but uh, I seem to uh, freak people out. So they would come up to me afterwards and say, that's it. I'm never using my phone again. I'm throwing it in Lake Ontario. And I would understand where they're coming from. And, and then, of course, there are more serious versions of that. Uh, delete Facebook, for example. And, and a lot of, you know, if I walk into the bookstore, I'd see these books about digital minimalism and decluttering your digital life. And all of them are part of this family of basically turning back the clock is the way I see it. And while I understand the attractiveness of that option, 
given that we're so surrounded by technology, especially these days, I mean, everybody's looking for a break from Zoom. It is actually not only futile, I think it's not desirable. Futile because you really cannot escape. In the world we live in, the, the grid is only getting uh, more tightly wound and it's impossible to evade surveillance completely. And in order to function as part of society and business especially, you have to embrace it to some degree. And it's also not desirable because I truly believe, you know, the, the inspiration for a lot of the work that I do is around the existential crisis we face with climate change. And that ultimately means we need to have some means of communicating with each other on a planetary level. And so we need to have these technologies or some variant of it. So that's retreat. How, how, how do we retreat without, uh, without removing? Well, I think that's where we have to build in restraints, right? And we, we need to apply a range of restraint mechanisms, as we have done in, in prior times in history, to rebalance things, to place some friction around how the companies operate, how our governments appropriate the data from the companies and the ecosystem around us, slow things down. I think if you introduce friction and introduce restraints, Part of that will make our life more manageable. And it also has to come from within as well. As you mentioned at the outset, you know, there's this part of what I'm trying to say that uh, a sense of, of social responsibility needs to be nurtured. And that needs to come from public education, ultimately, and from how we think about what it means to be a citizen in a society. Is that the reform part? Well, no, reform is in the middle, and it basically reform is this idea that, you know, we can leave it to the companies to do little micromanaging, little tweaks on the margins. Fact-checking is a great example. So, you know, under pressure, leading up to the election, most of the platforms in their own experimental ways flagged or even outright censored certain posts that were misleading. That's reform. It's the idea that Mark Zuckerberg and others like him will be able, through some sort of internal uh, reorientation of their business, be able to address many of the problems that we recognize. Well, I just don't think that's going to happen. They, they talk a good talk, but ultimately, unless we get at their underlying business model, uh, we won't be able to restrain them completely. Okay, so that takes us back to the restraint point, which you, you, you were getting into, but how does restraint play out in practice, especially as we come out of the pandemic? Well, I think we need more robust, independent oversight when it comes to both the governments and the platforms. So if you look at, at governments and all of the agencies of the state, you know, various agencies, privacy commissioners, and so on, whose job it is to prevent the abuse of power. Now, these are more or less effective in different country contexts. We could sit for hours and, you know, dissect them. Um, obviously, that's not what I do in the book. Instead, what I do is simply remind people that these are essential we, and, and we shouldn't lose sight of them. And they can be easily eroded over time, neglected or outright ignored, as we saw during the Trump administration in the United States. Um, when it comes to the companies... I think there again, we can apply restraint mechanisms to how they operate in a number of different ways. But one I would zero in on would be opening up uh, the black box of their proprietary algorithms, especially the big tech platforms. You know, they, they have enormous influence over the news we read, the preferences that we have, how we shop, how we eat, who we socialize with. 
we should, as a matter of public interest, be able to see how they're sorting us. That doesn't mean we have to violate any sense of proprietariness. We need an independent agency that can do some kind of public auditing of what's happening beneath the surface. That's just one example. Antitrust is another example of restraint mechanism we already spoke about. Who's going to press the reset button? I, that's another good question. I, I, I honestly, I, I hope that people begin to reflect on their own habits and preferences and then start to look outwards to their communities, beginning with their municipalities, look at the device they hold in their hand and reflect on it. So, you know, my target audience here was not an academic audience. It was, it was the public. It was, you know, trying to get at uh, the people with whom I speak as friends in my neighborhood and, and hope that, that this would inspire them to ultimately uh, do something about it. But none of this will happen without principled democratic governance. Like ultimately this has to boil down to what government regulators are going to do. At some point you can have a lot of social movement and a lot of collective action, but without there being some kind of law that backs up what you want to do, the, the change will likely be incomplete. That takes me to a final question, Ron. What's the price of not resetting? I think that if we continue down this path of more is better, unbridled consumption, not just with respect to social media, but digital technologies and our entire way of life, um, the writing's on the wall. We are taxing the planet's finite resources and causing possibly irreversible damage to the natural environment. And that's not a good outlook. <laughs> so I do think that that time is running out for us to make some some changes. That said, the pandemic has given everyone an opportunity to to take a step back and reflect on things. I'm sure you see this yourself, um, people taking stock of of their life choices. And I think now is a good opportunity. There's a kind of gestalt in the air. Most everyone recognizes something is wrong. I like this stuff. I like my device. It's kind of fun, but also it kind of sickens me. There's something wrong with it. Well, you know, that's partially why I wrote this book. I wanted to summarize and distill what is, I believe, an emerging consensus among the people who don't just have an opinion on this. I, I, what I try to do in the book is pull out the evidence and say, here's where the experts, the researchers are headed. This is the picture they're painting. If you really want to know about it, here's what they're saying. And I hope that I've done a good job in, in helping to inform people in that regard. My guest today has been Ron Deber, head of the Citizen Lab at the University of Toronto and author of Reset, Reclaiming the Internet for Civil Society. Ron, thanks for being part of Disruptors. Thank you for having me on the show. I appreciate it. I'd also like to thank Kevin Chan, the head of public policy at Facebook Canada, who we heard from at the start of the episode. I'm John Stackhouse, and this is Disruptors, an RBC podcast. Join us next time when we're going to pause to reflect on the year that was. We'll hear from companies across the country about how they pivoted their businesses due to COVID and what they're anticipating for 2021. Are they feeling more positive or pessimistic? I can't wait to find out. Until then. RBC Disruptors is created by the RBC Thought Leadership Group and does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. It's produced and recorded by JAR Audio. For more RBC Disruptors content, like or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit rbc.com disruptors.